1.6 million of the unemployed were white-collar professionals. Previous downturns had disproportionately hit blue-collar people. This time it was the relative elite of professional, technical, and managerial employees who were being singled out for media sympathy. In April 2003, for example, the New York Times magazine offered a much-discussed cover story about a former $300,000-a-year computer industry executive reduced after two years of unemployment, to working as a sales associate at The Gap. Throughout the first four years of the 2000s, there were similar stories of the mighty, or the mere mid-level brought low, ejected from their office suites, and forced to serve behind the counter at Starbucks. Today, white-collar job insecurity is no longer a function of the business cycle, rising as the stock market falls and declining again when the numbers improve. Nor is it confined to a few volatile sectors like telecommunications or technology, or a few regions of the country like the Rust Belt or Silicon Valley. The economy may be looking up, the company may be raking in cash, and still the layoffs continue, like a perverse form of natural selection, weeding out the talented and successful as well as the mediocre. Since the mid-90s, this perpetual winnowing process has been institutionalized under various euphemisms such as downsizing, right-sizing, smart-sizing, restructuring, and de-layering, to which we can now add the outsourcing of white-collar functions to cheaper labor markets overseas. In the metaphor of the best-selling business book of the first few years of the 21st century, the cheese, meaning a stable, rewarding job, has indeed been moved. A 2004 survey of executives found 95% expecting to move on, voluntarily or otherwise, from their current jobs, and 68% concerned about unexpected firings and layoffs. You don't, in other words, have to lose a job to feel the anxiety and despair of the unemployed. A second sign of trouble could be called overemployment. I knew from my reading that mid- and high-level corporate executives and professionals today often face the same punishing demands on their time as low-paid wage earners who must work two jobs in order to make ends meet. Economist Juliet Shore, who wrote The Overworked American, and business journalist Jill Andresky Fraser, author of White Collar Sweatshop, described stressed-out white-collar employees who put in 10 to 12-hour-long days at the office, continue to work on their laptops in the evening at home, and remain tethered to the office by cell phone even on vacations and holidays. On Wall Street, for example, Fraser reports, it is common for a supervisor to instruct new hires to keep a spare set of clothes and toothbrush in the office for all those late-night episodes when it just won't make sense to head home for a quick snooze. She quotes an Intel employee, If you make the choice to have a home life, you will be ranked and rated at the bottom. I was willing to work the endless hours, come in on weekends, travel to the ends of the earth. I had no hobbies, no outside interests. If I wasn't involved with the company, I wasn't anything. Something evidently is going seriously wrong within a socioeconomic group I had indeed neglected as too comfortable and too powerful to merit my concern. Where I had imagined comfort, there is now growing distress, and I determined to investigate. I chose the same strategy I had employed in Nickel and Dimed, to enter this new world myself as an undercover reporter and see what I could learn about the problems firsthand. Were people being driven out of their corporate jobs? What did it take to find a new one? And if things were as bad as some reports suggested, why was there so little protest? The plan was straightforward enough. 
to find a job, a good job, which I defined minimally as a white-collar position that would provide health insurance and an income of about $50,000 a year, enough to land me solidly in the middle class. The job itself would give me a rare first-hand glimpse into the mid-level corporate world, and the effort to find it would of course place me among the most hard-pressed white-collar corporate workers, the ones who don't have jobs. Since I wanted to do this as anonymously as possible, certain areas of endeavor had to be excluded, such as higher education, publishing, magazines, newspapers, and books, and non-profit liberal organizations. In any of these, I would have run the risk of being recognized and perhaps treated differently, more favorably, one hopes, than the average job seeker. But these restrictions did not significantly narrow the field, since, of course, most white-collar professionals work in other sectors of the for-profit corporate world, from banking to business services, pharmaceuticals to finance. The decision to enter corporate life, and an unfamiliar sector of it at that, required that I abandon, or at least set aside, deeply embedded attitudes and views, including my long-standing critique of American corporations and the people who lead them. I had cut my teeth as a fledgling investigative journalist in the 70s on the corporations that were coming to dominate the healthcare system, pharmaceutical companies, hospital chains, insurance companies. Then, sometime in the 80s, I shifted my attention to the treatment of blue and pink-collar employees, blaming America's intractable level of poverty, 12.5% by the federal government's official count, 25% by more up-to-date measures, on the chronically low wages offered to non-professional workers. In the last few years, I seized on the wave of financial scandals, from Enron through, at the time of this writing, Health South and Hollinger's International, as evidence of growing corruption within the corporate world, a pattern of internal looting without regard for employees, consumers, or even, in some cases, stockholders. But for the purposes of this project, these criticisms and reservations had to be set aside or shoved as far back in my mind as possible. Like it or not, the corporation is the dominant unit of the global economy and the form of enterprise that our lives depend on in a day-to-day -day sense. I write this on an IBM laptop while sipping Lipton tea and wearing clothes from the Gap, all major firms or elements thereof. It's corporations that make the planes run, though not necessarily on time, bring us and increasingly grow our food, and generally make it happen. I'd been on the outside of the corporate world, often complaining bitterly, and now I want it in. This would not, I knew, be an altogether fair test of the job market, if only because I had some built-in disadvantages as a job seeker. For one thing, I am well into middle age, and since age discrimination is a recognized problem in the corporate world, even at the tender age of 40, I was certainly vulnerable to it myself. This defect, however, is by no means unique to me. Many people, from displaced homemakers to downsized executives, now find themselves searching for jobs at an age that was once associated with a restful retirement. Furthermore, I had the disadvantage of never having held a white-collar job with a corporation. My one professional-level office job, which lasted for about seven months, was in the public sector at the New York City Bureau of the Budget. It had involved such typical white-collar activities as attending meetings, digesting reports, and writing memos. But that was a long time ago, before cell phones, PowerPoint, and email. 
In the corporate world I now sought to enter, everything would be new to me. The standards of performance, the methods of evaluation, the lines, and even the modes of communication. But I'm a quick study, as you have to be in journalism, and counted on this to get me by. The first step was to acquire a new identity and personal history to go with it, meaning in this case a resume. It is easier to change your identity than you might think. Go to Alvarado and 7th Street in Los Angeles, for example, and you will be approached by men whispering, ID, ID. I, however, took the legal route, because I wanted my documents to be entirely in order when the job offers started coming in. My fear, perhaps exaggerated, was that my current name might be recognized, or would at least turn up an embarrassing abundance of Google entries. So in November 2003, I legally changed back to my maiden name, Barbara Alexander, and acquired a social security card to go with it. As for the resume, although it had to be faked, I wanted it as much as possible to represent my actual skills, which I firmly believed would enrich whatever company I went to work for. I am a writer, author of thousands of published articles and about twelve nonfiction books, counting the co-authored ones, and I know that writing translates in the corporate world into public relations or communications, generally. Many journalism schools teach PR, too, which may be fitting, since PR is really journalism's evil twin. Whereas a journalist seeks the truth, a PR person may be called upon to disguise it, or even to advance an untruth. If your employer, a pharmaceutical company, claims its new drug cures both cancer and erectile dysfunction, your job is to promote it, not to investigate the grounds for these claims. I could do this on a temporary basis anyway, and have even done many of the things PR people routinely do.